Hey, George Cedarquist here, host of Opera Box Score. All right, I know you want to get to the podcast, so I'm going to keep this short. Opera Box Score needs your donation to retain its title as America's talk radio show about opera. You can give on our website, operaboxscore.com slash donate. When you throw even 10 bucks our way, it helps us promote the show to more listeners. Just 20 bucks helps cover our website costs. Chip in 50 bucks and we can pay to wax Tobias's back. But for real, please consider a donation of any amount to help us continue to bring you our hot takes on everything opera-related. Operaboxscore.com slash donate. Enjoy the podcast. Live from Chicago, you're listening to Opera Box Score. Uh, Let's get ready to rumble! Wherever you are, however you're listening, welcome to America's talk radio show about opera, period. I'm your host, Weston Williams, joined this week by, well, nobody. It's just little old me. The rest of the gang is taking the night off to get out and vote. I, however, was very responsible and voted early, so here we go. We are live on WNUR-FM Evanston, Chicago. All right. Tonight, we look back at some of our favorite Inside the Huddle segments as we interview three very different but equally fascinating opera artists. As Chicago Opera Theater prepares to open a new production of Tchaikovsky's Iolanta, we revisit our time with COT music director Lydia Jankowskaya, who makes her conducting debut this weekend. Then we rewind to last spring when we talked to baritone Anthony Clark Evans and tenor Paul Appleby. That's all coming up. Let's get started. So first... Russian-born conductor Lydia Yankovskaya serves as music director with Chicago Opera Theater. She is also a resident artist at National Sawdust in NYC and artistic director of Refugee Orchestra Project. She went inside the huddle with OBS creative consultant Oliver Camacho in the summer of 2017, just prior to her appointment at COT. I am so excited to be sitting here in the offices of Chicago Opera Theater with Lydia Yankovskaya, the newly appointed artistic music director of Chicago Opera Theater. So uh, I'd like to start uh, by letting you tell us a little bit about um, training, your education, your youth, you know. Well, I grew up uh, largely in St. Petersburg, Russia, Uh and then my family immigrated to the United States, so upstate New York, the Albany area. But my mother is a big music lover, so I was very fortunate to spend my childhood not only studying music, but attending many, many concerts, both in St. Petersburg, where I regularly went to the Mariinsky and to see the symphony, Uh. and also when I moved to the Albany area, because uh, Albany, Saratoga, which is right near Albany, is the Saratoga Performing Arts Center, is the summer home of the Philadelphia Orchestra and the New York City Ballet, and there are amazing other performances that happen there throughout the year. But I studied voice. I, I sang in a very intensive children's chorus as a child in the St. Petersburg Children's Chorus of Radio and Television. And I played piano starting at a very young age and also violin. And huh. I was fortunate, like I said, that my mother absolutely loved music and so me always made it a top priority. Just a little side like bar here. Um, I noticed that you went to Vassar. Mm-hmm. So we only have like one degree of separation because I consider Drew Minter, Drew Minter to be one of my mentors yeah. and to be a friend. 
anything you want to share about Vassar, your experience there? Absolutely loved it there. Couldn't have ended up in a better place. Drew actually is coming to town this year because he's working with Haymarket Art. Yeah, Opera, the Orontea. Oh, yeah, he's singing and directing, I believe. Yeah. Uh, which is very exciting. But I um, had the most amazing teachers at Vassar all around and teachers who not only were fabulous musicians, but also were so incredibly generous with their time. Um, it's because Vassar is only an hour and a half from New York City, mm -hmm. you have people who are really at the top of their fields, many of whom are also teaching at the conservatories in New York, but it's also a very small liberal arts program. And so the amount of attention is so personalized. Most of my classes were four or five people. And I was able to study voice and piano and conducting very mm. seriously there and to run and lead a new, a new music ensemble that was student run that was um, a chorus and a roster of about 50 instrumentalists that we'd shift around for various projects. And to have that opportunity as an undergraduate, in addition to studying languages on a very high level, I also um, did most of a major in philosophy. And all of those things combined, it was just an incredible opportunity and with no distractions on a small labard school wow. campus. So it sounds like all along you have had voice or singing as part of your training. Does that mean that you know getting to opera as a conductor was like a natural thing for you? In a way, I always loved to sing. I never pursued it as a career path or as even my primary instrument. Mm -hmm. But I sang seriously and I sang even professionally, both as a soloist and some operatic productions mm -hmm. and, and as a choral singer. All the way through grad school and graduate school, I studied voice while I was... Uh, uh, conducting, of course, was my main study, but I studied voice on the side with the head of the BU Opera Institute, Sharon Daniels. And... For me, singing is such an essential part of music in general. The first music making that we made as human beings and that all human beings continue to make, regardless of where they live in the world, is singing and using the human voice. We're all singers. We are. We're we all singers. Everybody's assumed to be able to sing when you're a child. Yes, and I think everybody does and can, even if they're not aware of it. Even yeah. speaking, in a way, is like singing. And so much of the classical music tradition comes out of that. And so much of the way we write or the way we approach voice leading or the way we approach counterpoint comes from singing. So to me, as a musician, it is essential to understand the voice and to be a singer, at least in some sense. And that was one of my ways to opera. Of course, I uh, was a pianist, and that was always my primary instrument, and I also was a violinist. And I started conducting when I was only 17. I was very fortunate to have a youth orchestra conductor who saw something that he thought was promising and asked me if I wanted to get up and conduct the orchestra. And I didn't really know what I was doing yet. <laughs> um, it, it's an orchestra where I was a violinist, and yeah. so I was leading sectionals yeah. normally already, and I had won a piano concerto with a co competition with them with a piano concerto. So I had worked with the orchestra as a leader already, but not uh, conducting. And he came up to me and he said, would you like to conduct this movement of a Dvorak symphony at our next concert? Mm. And I didn't even know that that was an option or a possibility. I would never have asked. But because he offered this, I started studying and really understanding how to dissect a score and figuring out physically what it meant to conduct and taking lessons. And I conducted uh, this movement of a symphony, and I fell in love with conducting and continued to conduct since then. Hmm. Well, for those who have listened to my other 
endeavor was I did a podcast for 10 years uh, called Opera Now, and the host and producer attended Castleton Festival mm-hmm. as a singer. Uh, it looks like you were at Castleton, too. I wonder if there's a connection there, but can you tell us about Lauren Mazel and about being there? Of course. Being there for me was pivotal. I went there very soon after graduate school, and it was actually the last year of Lauren Mazel's life, so it was a very unusual time at the festival. Uh, I was there throughout for three months or something like that over the course of the summer, and um, Mazel was very present and very involved in everything, but he was physically uh, quite ill at the time, and so we ended up conducting most things in his stead as his assistants. And my first day there, I was woken up at 9 a.m. and told that at 10 a.m. I had to conduct an entire zitz probe of Madame Butterfly, (laughs) having never worked with the singers and having never worked with that orchestra because Mazelle wasn't feeling well and I had just arrived the day before. And what's worse is he sat at the very back of the orchestra, watching the entire rehearsal and occasionally giving comments. Uh, But luckily, it seems that he was happy enough with what I did that I ended up conducting a lot that summer. And to have his insight and input into what we were doing and into what I was doing was so incredibly valuable. I conducted an inordinate swath of repertoire and spanning all periods, including Madame Butterfly and Mozart works and uh, uh, things from other genres and periods. And um, to have Mazel's incredible mind there Mm -hmm. and to have his thoughts and to understand what are the things that really matter or that someone with that kind of experience finds important because Mazel started conducting when he was a small child. There are mm-hmm. videos of YouTube of little Mazel at age 12 or something <laughs> like that conducting professional orchestras. Uh, so this is a man with more experience than really anyone alive mm. at the time. That's a whole other interview. I, is there <laughs> any one thing or a couple things that you would like to impart? Because a lot of singers listen to this show like, you know, that he has said about singing or has told to singers that might be really helpful and getting to work with an orchestra. Because I feel like yeah. a lot of people who go through a voice program, um, their first time actually singing with an orchestra and singing on stage, everything gets derailed because mm-hmm. they're just not used to the experience. Like the distance between the band and the singer, how the, your voice feels in the hall, like all those things can really... Uh, distinguish the great singers from the people who just have good training, you know? Well, I think something that Mazel was very aware of is just great musicianship. Mm -hmm. And ultimately, that's so important. There are many people with beautiful voices. Mm -hmm. But a singer who, first of all, shapes the lines beautifully and phrases beautifully, because no matter how beautiful your voice is, if you don't deliver the text and don't deliver the phrasing and don't shape the music in a way that conveys its emotional underpinnings and meaning, then it doesn't quite work. And the second thing that I think was very important to him, but that's also very important all around, is being aware of the verticality of the score and being really aware of what the orchestra is doing so that it's not just I am singing my line beautifully and somewhere underneath there is an orchestra (laughs) supporting what I'm doing, but recognizing that it is a unified whole. And if as a singer, and I strongly believe this as well, if as a singer one recognizes that this is something greater 
and you are part of this greater thing and you are interacting with the orchestra. You're always mm -hmm. in duet with the orchestra. Sometimes yeah. you are accompanying the orchestra. Yeah. Sometimes they're accompanying you. Sometimes you're creating counterpoint together yeah. and how important that is. So I'm just going to test your prejudices here. <laughs> how do you feel about bel canto opera? I like bel canto opera. It's great. Okay. It has its own place. I think okay. I, I people often ask you, what's your favorite composer? Or what's yeah. your favorite period or whatever? I'm not I don't find that I'm prejudiced against one or another or towards one or another. Um, there are sure some kinds of music that I really enjoy performing. But I think uh, bel canto has its own very important place. And I think if we hadn't developed the capabilities of the human voice mm -hmm. in the way that we did d during this period. There are many things that are happening musically today also that would not be possible. Okay. That's a great answer. Um, I find sometimes that, you know, sophisticated conductors such as yourself kind of poo-poo bel canto because it doesn't give the conductor much to accept you know, follow and support, you know? I don't always agree with that. I think sometimes you are following and supporting, but you do another types of repertoire as well. Yeah. And in Volcanto, there are also some interactions between what the orchestra is doing and what the singer is doing. And I actually think for an orchestra, especially a contemporary orchestra, performing bel canto is much harder than it looks on the page. I know. <laughs> I think many people make the mistake of seeing that it's boom, chuck, chuck all yeah. the time or some sort of five repeated five, one, four, yeah. five, one chords. And they assume that the shaping and the phrasing is very simplistic and that there's not much to do there. But that's not really the case. And because it looks simple, it becomes so much more difficult to really give it shape and make it musical. Because I think the result of this prejudice that you mentioned, as a result of it, you often hear very bad performances yes. of bel canto <laughs> And people are disengaged, like the orchestra's disengaged, and exactly. the conductor's disengaged. It's like, oh. But in reality, it requires more concentration than anything else because you have to be so aware of everything happening around you, of the singer, of the orchestra being really unified, and of shaping things in a very specified and very planned way. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, it just doesn't work. Oh, I love your answer. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> of course. So um, I do want to get to Chicago Opera Theater proper. But uh, just I want to ask you a little bit about the Refugee Orchestra project. And I remember when you, your appointment was first announced, I was like digging around and I saw that you brought some uh, like singers to the U.S. that uh, like maybe from Syria or from Lebanon, I forget exactly, or maybe all of those places. Uh, I just want to hear about that because that's super interesting. And like we're like in this political climate right now, this moment where I feel like these things are actually important to do these things, you know. Yeah, so the Refugee Orchestra Project showcases music by refugee composers and features refugee performers. I myself actually came to this country as a refugee with my family in the 90s and certainly would not be performing music if I didn't have that opportunity. Other things aside, HIAS, which was the sponsoring agency for my family, also paid for my music lessons when I was in college and made it possible for me to study what I study now. But this country has been very generous to me and as it has to many, many people throughout the ages. And so I formed this organization as a way to showcase the incredible contributions that refugees and immigrants bring to our nation. Uh, in the music community in particular, as you know, there are so many people from all over the world. And because music is a universal language, you mm -hmm. do not need to have any specialized 
cultural understanding in the same way as you might in certain other fields and you don't need to know the language even necessarily to make music together and so as a result our field is so filled with people from all kinds of cultural backgrounds and who've grown up in very very different countries and so with Refugee Orchestra Project, we bring together performers and composers uh, who are themselves refugees or immigrants or composers of old who many don't realize uh, are who many don't realize are immigrants or, or refugees. So, for instance, Donizetti, speaking of Belcanto, is a composer who was a refugee from Italy for a long time as hmm. a political refugee. Or there are many, of course, composers who came to the U.S. in the middle of the 20th century to escape World War II, or in some cases earlier, uh, Irving Berlin, who wrote things like God Bless America and so many other iconic pieces of music that we think is quintessentially American, was a refugee who came with his family to escape pogroms in Eastern Europe at the turn of the century. And so I think it's very important for us to recognize culturally how much of what we are and what we do is built on uh, people and the talents of people who came here from other nations. Well, um, we do have to talk about Chicago Opera Theater. Sure, well, we've actually already planned out the 1819 season, and I can't disclose any of the specifics, <laughs> but I can tell you that there's going to be something, and it, almost definitely there will be something Russian on mm -hmm. there because that is my background and one of the things that I specialize in. Mm -hmm. And there is such a breadth of amazing Russian repertoire that has not been done in Chicago, which is very exciting for me and I think for COT. And there's an audience for it here. Yes, yeah, absolutely. Dmitry Borosovsky gives a recital at, at uh, Chicago Symphony Center. Man, they come yeah, out of the Well, there's a huge Russian community here as well, yeah. and, and Russians tend to love opera, and there is just so much great opera, mm -hmm. Russian opera, that has been neglected for various reasons that have nothing to do with the quality of the music. Yeah. And so uh, we're definitely looking at some Russian repertoire. There's also, I, I believe that we are currently living in a golden age for American opera. Uh, opera Base actually recently did a study of the most popular composers in every nation and who's the most performed composer mm -hmm. across the country. And in Europe, not surprisingly, it's national composers. So yeah. Wagner in Germany yeah. or Tchaikovsky in Russia. In the U.S., the most popular composer in the country is Glass. Uh, which is not something most would expect, but mm -hmm. just in general, uh, among all of the classical composers. And uh, in addition to Phil Glass, there are composers like Jake Heggie, who are creating amazing opera, who are so widely performed all over the country, but who are rarely heard. But those are just two, and there are countless, countless others. Missy Mazzoli, who just won some awards for her opera, Breaking the Waves. Uh, of course, uh, Angel's Bone, which was a uh, Pulitzer Prize winner this year. There are so many amazing works being created by mm -hmm. composers here in this country, or that have been created in recent years, and that have not yet been seen in Chicago. And many of these pieces have become almost standard repertory in other parts of the country, but I think... Like Dead Man Walking. Exactly. Like only colleges are doing this thing. Yeah, but... Dead Man Walking. And again, with Heggie, there are so many great operas. Moby Dick is another one that I absolutely love. It's, it's kind of big for COT. It, you yeah. know, I think it's definitely doable. It depends what how things are balanced out, but uh, certainly it, he 
brings the grandeur of the ocean mm -hmm. and of the whale and everything else to life in a really exciting way. But there are so many uh, amazing pieces that I think we can choose from in that repertory as well. Were you courted by COT or was this sort of like a process where like they had it, you had to like apply for this position? So I, I fortunately I was already in touch with Doug and some other people of COT about other projects when mm. this position opened up and uh, there I was courted by COT to apply for the position. Once that happened, of course, there was a very lengthy mm -hmm. and multifaceted application process mm -hmm. that included many days of interviews and <laughs> Um, and many, many materials that I had to submit. And I believe they literally called everybody I know in the country <laughs> because I kept having people uh, contact me and say, oh, people from CNOT called us to ask yeah. about you. So I think they called everyone in the music business, Henry Vogel in particular, I think got on the phone and just called everyone who could have ever worked with me. Uh, mm. Which I guess it's it's great that despite that, I <laughs> <laughs> they took me into this position. Um, but I, uh, I, I I'm not sure if otherwise I would have known about it or realized that it opened up. So I'm very glad that I found out about this because I could not think of a company that would be a better fit for me personally and where I'd want to work more. The staff is fantastic. It's a very useful, energized group of people who are so good at their work and so knowledgeable. Uh, and uh, the board is so engaged and so dedicated to the mission of the organization, which is also fantastic. And the repertoire possibilities are also so wide. There are so many things you can do because COT has the flexibility of working in certain different kinds of spaces, bringing in different kinds of artists. Uh, it's, I think this company is of a great size for having flexibility, and it's also growing. COT has been significantly growing audience numbers and um, uh, and well, fundraising numbers and everything else in the last couple of years, and it, that's slated to go up even more in the next few. I think there are so many possibilities, and I think this company also is growing and reinventing itself at exactly the right time for opera in America and for what culturally I think is happening in our country. Everybody's watching to see what's happening at COT. It's really always been a critical darling. And yeah, like you said, like the there's a moment right now uh, for American opera, for contemporary opera, and some organization has to capitalize on it because others are not. I, I absolutely hope that we can. And I again, there are not only American opera, but there's so many other great pieces that I think weren't performed much in the 20th century because they weren't relevant for that certain time mm -hmm. or for that certain audience. But I think audiences are changing and also opera audiences are getting younger and more in touch with uh, the world around us. And people want to see really relevant work that really speaks to them. And that's what's important. Of course, you, you might know COT this fall is already starting to move in that direction since Doug mm -hmm. Clayton is taking over. The, the Council by Minotti is the first yeah, yeah. piece this season, which of course yeah. is very timely yeah. and we're already organizing some events events around that as well. And uh, Elizabeth Cree was just named, I think, by Opera Wire as the number one most anticipated opera production nationwide, hmm. which is also very exciting. Nice. Opera Philadelphia is doing it as yeah. well, and they're premiering it in September. So two quick questions for you. They're not really quick, but um, one is how do you see uh, technology 
uh, and opera and working together, either how opera is distributed or how it can be incorporated uh, into performances. And also, I want to hear about your ideas for the Young Artist Program, which is a matter that's very near and dear to me. Great. So starting with technology and opera, that's a very big question. And yes. I think it's this whole another discussion that we can have for many, many hours. But of course, it depends on the piece of music. And so many composers more and more are incorporating technological elements into what they're doing. Mason Bates, who was here working with the Chicago Symphony for a while and uh, is now just premiered his new opera, The Evolution, Revolution of Steve Jobs, just mm -hmm. premiered, for instance, is a composer who has a DJing background mm -hmm. and incorporates that kind of technology into his work. Of course, electronic music in general has been such a big part of making music for a very long time. More and more also in operatic productions, there is a use of technology on the stage in one way or another. I think Death and the Powers by Todd McElroy yeah. was here some time ago. And of course, video design and projection. I just worked on a project with very high level video design where we had um, a very high resolution, gigantic screen the size of the theater combined with certain kinds of projection. And I think if that's done right, and it's very difficult to do that right mm. and to do that on a high level, but if it's really done right, that can also add something new and interesting to a work. Opera Philadelphia is doing a magic flute right now that's highly anticipated. Yeah, that's from Berlin. That also, like, yeah, yeah but, from yeah. Berlin that yeah. also uses projection and almost is like a cartoon with live yeah. people involved and in it. And the singers are sort of like props in that project yeah. <laughs> production, yeah. Or I'm developing an opera right now with Dan Visconti, who's actually Chicago-based the composer who's Chicago-based, but that's a video game opera that hmm. incorporates elements. It's called Permadeath, and it incorporates elements of video games possibilities into uh, an operatic performance. Hmm. I think the singers at this point are slated to wear certain kinds of uh, motion capture, motion capture yeah. on their bodies that allows their avatars to move with them. <laughs> so I, cool. yeah, and those are just some examples. Kamala Sankaram, who's a composer who's been noticed more and more in this country, just created a virtual reality opera that one experiences through VR glasses. Mm. And they've even for that particular project, uh, because most of it had to be pre-recorded for the yeah. VR purposes, uh, but uh, they invented some new type of microphone. That's a 360 microphone. And the way it works is when you turn your head where the sound is coming from, or the, the perception of where the sound is coming from also changes. So if there's a ticking clock in front of you on the wall, as you turn your head to the right, suddenly you hear the ticking through your left ear rather than huh. in front of you. So there's all kinds of interesting technology doing different things in different contexts. Mm -hmm. So the Young Artist Program, mm -hmm. do you have plans? Have you been thinking about that yet? Yes, I actually had an opportunity to hear the young artists just a couple of days ago in performance, or the current young artists. And I think there are so many possibilities. At this point, we're talking to the leadership at Roosevelt, talking to the young artists themselves, and trying to figure out how we can best serve the program and develop the program and bring it to the highest level that it can possibly be. I think the opportunities here are amazing to, uh, because the program is well-funded through Roosevelt and the artists who are part of it get free tuition and this wonderful opportunity to perform with COT. And there are certainly, I think, 
more things that can be done in terms of collaboration and in terms of the young artists having a lot of access to myself, to the other artists who are coming in to perform as COTS soloists or as conductors and directors. And I think there are many other possibilities on the horizon that we're still exploring, but it's certainly something that I'd like to get very involved in and that I wanted us to make as high quality as possible an experience both for the young artists and for the company as well. That's great, because this is important to me, so I'll be looking for that. Have you been involved with the Young Artists Program? Um, we probably should say that off the, <laughs> <laughs> off the mic. Mm -hmm. But, um, yeah, I mean, there's. I feel like there's so many other questions I could ask you, like, mm -hmm. about being a woman in this business. And it's not, I mean, it's so, sure. like, that we even have to talk about that. It's like, oh, come on, give me a break, you know? But it's still a topic, you know? Absolutely. But we actually are out of time. Oh, we can, <laughs> yeah, if you want to talk a little longer, that's fine, yeah. I'm happy okay. To no, but I actually am, I'm, yeah. I'm out of time. So yeah, I, I have problem. another interview to do today. <laughs> yeah, no problem. No, yeah. No. But uh, thank you so much for this. Um, this has of been course. brilliant. And I know that everybody's really excited. I'm really excited for you to be here. And uh, hopefully we can maybe do this again sometime and do a of check course. a check in after you've had your first couple of productions under your belt here. So absolutely, would love to. Thanks so much. Okay, really welcome. Thank you. It. Yeah. Baritone Anthony Clark Evans is up next as we revisit some of our favorite past interviews. That's only on Opera Box Score and WNUR FM Evanston, Chicago. Live from Chicago, you're listening to Opera Box Score. More right after this. Hey, George Cedarquist here, host of Opera Box Score. So, we call ourselves America's talk radio show about opera. Why? Because we are. With an ever-growing base of fans subscribing to the OBS podcast and a stadium full of listeners tuning into our live broadcast, we are in the ear holes of the opera audience you want to reach. Want to promote your opera-related service or event? Or propose to the bear-a-hunk in your life? Maybe you just want the sound of your name memorialized on air by our announcer, Norm Waddell. Anything's possible. Drop us a line at operaboxscore at gmail.com for rates and availability. Huddle up. Let's go inside the huddle. Lauded for his Stentorian Verdi style by the Chicago Tribune and, uh, and his warm-toned vivacity and humanity by the San Francisco Chronicle, baritone Anthony Clark Evans is quickly gaining recognition as one of the most promising Verdi baritones of his generation. Last spring, he joined Opera Box Score creative consultant Oliver Camacho inside the huddle.
St. Louis Cardinals. Always? Yeah, I mean, ever since about 1989, when I really started playing for the first time. Yeah. And uh, I really just, I don't know what it was. I think it was that uh, ridiculous Bush Stadium that was just <laughs> a big bowl. Once I saw it on TV, the big overhead shot of it, and it was just so beautiful. I was like, that's awesome, you know. Mark McGuire hitting 900-foot home runs. Oh, man. So I'm a Royals fan, so I kind of hate the Cardinals. I'm sorry. No, it's fine. I like the Royals, too, because I love Bo Jackson. Oh, that. Yes. Oh my gosh, I love Bo Jackson. I love Brett Butler. Yeah, Billy Butler. Billy Butler. Billy Butler's a redneck who played baseball yep. for the Royals. Oh, Hilarious yeah. guy. Very pudgy. Oh, yeah. Couldn't run, but one time he stole a base in the World Series. We're gonna edit all of this out. Yeah. No, but like those World Series in the eighties. Yeah. When I, when I I was too little then to like appreciate it. When I go back and watch it, those were the best, man. Yeah. Those were like so ridiculous. The calls were all like crazily bad all over yeah. the place. The refs were terrible. Yeah. The refs were terrible. And then you get uh, all these great moments, and a lot of it happened in Missouri, of all places. Yeah, so I, I, know, very, right? I don't know. It's like it's the coolest thing. The I seventy so, series. It's yeah. sort of like yeah. the golden age of singing, like in the seventies and the eighties, when like you know historical performance practice and. You know, I think it was the '50s, really. Okay. If, if I'm no, I'm being, saying the golden age of singing. Yeah, if I'm being totally honest, I think the '50s was the best. Awesome. Young, Why do you say Cor- that? Young Corelli. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Young, young Tibaldi. Come on. So you're Tibaldi. Siepi. Cesare Siepi. which was the best bass ever. Yep. I think he buries Giaudov. Um, I, I mean, There's it's this just edge to the to the sound. And you hear he sounds like a he sounds so, like a baritone. I'm trying to figure out because when I hear you sing. I hear your technique. Not that it, I hear like right, right, right. But but you're like a very technical singer, you know. Right. I'm, I I think I'm a very Italian singer. Okay. Yeah. I think that's the way it kind of has been set up. And I wonder, like, you know, are you? You just mentioned a bunch of singers, you know. Yeah. But I didn't hear a lot. Like this is gonna. I'm gonna get in trouble. I didn't hear a lot of artists that you name. You know, like no. Who are, yeah. But those are the people. I'm the biggest Corelli fan on the face yeah. of the earth. I think that he is. Probably the best um, raw, and so you got to understand where I'm coming from too. You see what I mean? Like he he started a little, a little later. Um, I think he's the most raw, intense, animalistic sound that has ever been, yeah. including Del Monaco, including Laudi Volpi, all those guys. Okay. I think he is the one. He's huh. the golden child of tenors. Well, everything just makes sense to me now because um, <laughs> I saw you on the prima of Puritani. And I thought you were just going for things, yeah. like really going for things. 
And uh, it was surprising to me. Like, you know, you should be nervous. It's like your, well, it wasn't really your lyric debut because you sang whatever 20 roles yes. in the Ryan Arbor yeah. Center. But it was your, <laughs> ostensibly your lyric debut as a professional. Yes. And uh, yeah, you were taking chances, you know. And so um, you're a jock. That's what you are. You're, you're just a singing <laughs> jock, you know. I mean, but that's what you have to be. Singing is a very physical thing. Um, it's almost like the Olympics of the small muscles. <laughs> you know? That's the name of this right. episode. So the Olympics, the of, the Olympics of the small muscles. <laughs> like, you have to be able, again, your vocalis muscle just by itself, I mean, to even get, get it to be fit, quote-unquote fit, is like just to, you know, you have to warm up a very certain way. You have to use falsetto if you're a man. I mean... I don't really ever use. You say falsetto. that like that's embarrassing. No, I mean, but I'm saying in in professional yeah. singing in a house like this, I'm not. You're not ever going to see me do any falsetto. Okay? Yeah, sure. It's not going to be heard. Yeah. So, I mean, I use falsetto every single day, but I'm just like sometimes I'm thinking to myself, man, why am I doing this? But I know why I'm doing it <laughs> to get the inner edge of that vocal fold. Yeah. And the inner edge of the vocalis muscle to really, you know, vibrate and be used so yeah. that the whole muscle is strong and not just the the parts that I use. So again, it's just this little flap of skin, you know. But it's, you have to, you have to really know what you're doing. Scientifically, the body is a uh, pretty amazing thing. Oh yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so you talk about the physicality of it, and then we talk about relating this to athletics. Vocally, going for things, you know, like Corelli, you talk about being raw and just going with it. Do you ever feel like sometimes there are constraints within an opera that don't allow you to do to be as free with your personality, with your physicality, or with your vocal uh, technique that you want to be? Do you ever feel that with, when you're with on your stage? technique? No, your technique is your own thing. Mm -hmm. But I think just uh, musically, you're kind of at the mercy sometimes of whoever might be in charge musically, mm -hmm. um, directionally. We'll be careful. Like I won't, we'll no, no, no I'm just saying. I, I, to me, it's a collaboration. Anyways, you've got to be. Those guys know more about that than I do. Right. That's why they're here, is to help someone like me who's actually going to provide the product to be the product. I've got to use what they have to say and, you know, put it into the thing. The way I do things, I have to put their ideas and their opinions into the way I do things as well. Absolutely. And it's only going to make me better. It's only gonna, My palate just gets bigger every time I do any show. So, again... I don't. I don't really mind that stuff. You know, I'm. I'm pretty uh, <clears throat> easy as a colleague and stuff like that. It's just uh, you've got to really get yourself across too. It's a very fine line, but I think it's achievable just if you have any kind of a brain. You know, yeah. you, you seem like a, a smart and observant guy. <laughs> what was it like singing at Cardiff uh, and seeing? like international competition and like what did you can you know toot your own horn if you want but also say like what did you observe in the other styles of singing that are out there competing for something like that well i mean it's just interesting to me that you don't really know what else is out there so, uh, so i don't know if you saw any of the card stuff they, they've started to really focus not focus but they, they're bringing in these mongolian guys okay who are just monsters yeah they're like if i'm like okay let's just compare it to this if i am a triple a singer <laughs> here we go this is sports this is baseball we're talking I'm about so farm systems here okay <laughs> if i'm a triple a singer there's a triple a team in louisville kentucky called the louisville bats so i know triple a a little bit um if i'm a triple a singer these mongolian guys are like cabrera <laughs> yeah you know, 
they're they're winning the triple crown. Okay. Like they just come out and you're just like, oh my In god. In terms of Their size voices, of the voice, the, the or... voice is just so impressive. Hmm. Other things might not be what, what's as a, put together. What's impressive? Is it just the, the sound is just oh, it's just massive. Okay. And it's huge and just fills every corner of every place, even the backstage. But is that what Carp is looking for? No, I'm just okay. saying, I mean... That's when, the competition that's Right, out, when that's we first just, like, meet each other, and yeah. then you hear him sing finally, it's just like, oh, my <laughs> God, jaw on the floor. Yeah. And then you just have to go beat their butts. Yeah. With your voice, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. No, you just have to be, you have to be as impressive, but, you know, you have to maybe, like, use some charm or whatever, because I'm not going to... The Mongolian baritone, it was quite something. He's... He didn't win. No, he won the song prize. Okay. Uh, or he was like one of the winners of the song prize. But I mean, to me, it's just like we're the same type of voice. His is much bigger and more maybe pretty than my voice or whatever. I don't know. But it's just I offer different things than he offers. That's the way I looked at it. But when I first started, I was like, holy shit. You know? You know like, <laughs> yes, there we go. There we go. But it was just super <clears throat> impressive. So. That was one one of the things that instantly when I got there I was just like oh my god listen to that you know like it's amazing uh, I don't know it was the British way of singing is very appealing to me I've, I've worked with a lot of British people uh, Brits I guess you'd call them and not British but uh, UK <laughs> dwellers okay um, Christopher Purvis comes to mind I covered him as Sharpless here uh, my first year in the Ryan Center and he he worked on Bach with me okay. and he kind of opened my eyes to make it a little bit more lyrical and not so much like a you know trombone part yeah. which tends to be kind of the way people go about that because it's just such you know you got to be exact and stuff but I think he's he's just like just make it into a song it's a song you know it's not an orchestra part you're a you're a singer you're okay. using words and music you know okay so so I'm so glad you brought that up I mean like that that to me is uh going more towards like you know, Kunst and away yep. from Stimm, you know? Yeah. Like, do you feel like you have more work to do in that arena? And, like, what repertoire do you think you could... I mean, like, I think your voice right now... I think I've done that work now. Yeah. But... I mean, you're singing this, this like, role in Puritani, which is... Yeah. Let's just put it out there. Like, it's, it's a big sing. Like, for somebody yeah, your age, huge. like, it's like, yeah. And, like, I, I would like to hear you, and you're, while you're young, sing something like Pelias, you know, since you have the high notes, you know? But you're maybe not interested in this repertoire because I, well, it's not junky enough for well, you. <laughs> I tend to get um, the most compliments about the the you know people say I'm built for French. That's the, what they say, but I just don't I don't feel that way. What do you want to say? I really like Italian. I I like French a lot too. It's just there's not as much out there for me to do in French. It's more, the more stuff that's out there for baritones is all, like, kind of obscure. And then you have kind of the Bizets. And Valentine. And Valentine, yeah. things like that, which is, again, that's such a small role. You know, I, it's not something that's important to me, you know. Uh, Faust, I think it's more of like a hit. I'd rather, you know, kind of dive deeper than that. Yeah. I am going to be doing Zurga coming up. I won't tell you where. But, uh. You I'll heard it here first, Opera Box Score. <laughs> yes. I'll be keep refreshing the website until <laughs> we find out. <laughs> I will. I will be doing that coming up. So that is something that is in my Aria package. Yeah, that Aria is amazing. I've, so yeah, I know. It's to me that's like the one that the young guys should be doing. Yeah, not Valentine. Yeah, Valentine. That's the whole role, really. Yeah, it's yeah. like that in the trio, and then you're done. So I, I would much rather people think about the other aria in their aria package. That's just some advice here. Sorry, guys. I know you don't <laughs> want to hear it, but uh. 
it, it, you know, French is something I, I'm going to dive into whenever I have a chance. But it's not something that I think people even want to hire me for as much. They just hear me kind of like going straight up to Verity. Yeah. Are you okay Which, with that? Do you want yeah, to Yeah, I'm Verity? totally okay yeah. with that. Okay. Yeah, okay. <laughs> but right now, while your voice is still tight, you know, <clears throat> I haven't, yeah. you know. Where, you're still, <laughs> where are you going with that? Well, you know. He's a perv. It's, it's kids. No. It's, <laughs> it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's still, you know, your, your voice There's a oscillates pull. fast yes. right now, yeah. you know. Like, I would love to hear you sing Bach. You know, I would well, love to hear you sing some of that fun handle stuff. Like I know, it, but it yeah. tends to be bassier. Yeah, that's true. So you have to think about it that way as well. Yeah. I don't really mind that because I can sing lower notes, you know, with kind of like the same undulation as my middle and high, but it's just, it's more taxing on me. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. I, I don't enjoy always doing it because sometimes it's a chore. But um, I don't know. The handle stuff is fine. He didn't write for baritones ever. The guy just didn't do it, you know. So there, I don't know if really baritones handled, existed. Yeah. But uh, I mean, I guess that uh, Pelias would be something fun. But again, I think it's, I think people hire that even just based on if you can sing the high note or not sometimes because yeah. it's such a difficult role. Does do the characters influence what you want to sing? Uh, no, not really. Okay. But in Italian, it does tend to be the bad guy is the baritone. Right. So, I mean, it just that's just the way it is. Uh, I love Scarpia as yeah. far as a character just because he's he gets to, he, he shows you everything right off the bat. He mm -hmm. just lays it right out on the table. It's amazing. And all he does is just, like, come out and be nasty, and it's just the coolest <laughs> thing ever. Yeah. And then you, you come into the second act, he's, like, sitting at his little table drinking some wine. <laughs> Tosca von Parker is just like, he's <laughs> nasty, you know, it's, he is nasty, even though he looks like he's not nasty, he's super nasty. Oh, absolutely. I love that guy. <laughs> so, I love all that stuff, but I mean. It's more about the music. Yeah, you don't ever think, this character is something that, so you don't ever look at the character and let that influence the way that your only sound comes in, out. Only in Mozart, really. Okay. Yeah. I think that I let my sound come out as the Count much different than I would say for Leporello. Why is that? Just because the characters are so different. The Count is so much more... He's much smarter, number one. Leporello is a bit of a, of a rube as far as Giovanni is concerned. Giovanni is a much smarter guy. Right. Um, you're not really supposed to say that about your characters. You can't judge them. But, uh, no, you have to, uh, you know, to get yourself, you know, going, you have to have some kind of an idea. So, Alfonso I love a lot because he's just kind of like a little bit mean and snarky. Right. You're, well, he's and, he's, and he's you controlling Uh I learned it for opera in the Ozarks, okay. but I never did get on stage for it. I know. I just. I don't want to hear you sing Alfonso. I, I but I love that opera. Yeah. I know. I know. That's my favorite opera of all time. But me I don't too. want to hear you sing it. That's my favorite opera, and people look at me funny when I say that because yeah. a lot of people say I hate that opera. Yeah. Uh, I'm in that crew. Yeah. I love Cozy. I think it's... Yeah, Cozy's a masterpiece. Like, it's, it's the, the please come see Cozy Funs with Day here. Please, oh my God. Chicago. <laughs> yeah. But it's... I, I hope I get to sing it when I'm an older man. Yeah. Because, again, I think that it has so many beautiful... Yep. Trio? Yeah. Are you kidding me? Yeah. That is unbelievably well put together. Yeah. Alfonso versus the Count is even like a totally different side of the coin. Because the Count's really just... He's a jerk, you know? Yeah. Mozart is so rich, you know, it's just, there's so many layers to it. Well, that's a different does. facet that I would never expect you to say. Because, really? Yeah, I mean, this whole time I, we've I've already established what I think about you. <laughs> <laughs> and you're not supporting that narrative. That oh, yeah, well, I mean, I am Because Mo Mozart, to, Mozart to me is like the Kunst, you know, music that a lot of people end up singing. I, well, okay, fault, you know. 
I think that that's the wrong way to think about it, just in my personal opinion. I don't think that it is that. I think people have just made it into that. I think you have to sing it. And the problem with a lot of Mozart that you hear nowadays is people don't want to sing it. They want to be funny or be really character-y. No. If you sing it, it is the most beautiful stuff that is ever I, I, I don't disagree with you. But I what hear I'm you saying that, and all I'm thinking is Don Alfonso. Constantly, well, there's a lot of character. That's true. That goes on I, I hear what you're saying, but what, what I'm saying is that there's like musical rhetoric that a certain type of singer, let's say people who have more early music training, yes. really love to dig into with Mozart. Yes. And there are almost like two camps of approaching it these days, you know? Uh, uh, there are, and and neither of them are musical. <laughs> Let's just put it that way. And, and I think that that's where everything should come from first. Everything should, what did the composer actually write down? Not in like this edition or this edition, I'm saying at all. What is the word in the note there? And then what is the orchestra doing underneath? And that's where your motivation comes from. It's very simple. Anybody who takes it farther than that is just a little out of their mind, I no, think. No subtext? just No, I mean, there's subtext in it. In it. Yes. <laughs> you know, but life is the subtext. It's just your, you bring your own experience to it, and there's your subtext. I mean, I just... Opera is simple. <laughs> <laughs> you heard it here. Opera no, I mean, simple. there's... I mean, I up to a certain point in opera or in music history, I think he's, you're absolutely right. Yeah. I think that, you know... I would not say the same thing about John Adams. Let's just yeah, put it that exactly. Way. Like <laughs> he's going to give you motivation. What I'm saying write, is that like in. composers up to let's say Berlioz, maybe even like yeah. Berlioz, they all were being very very deliberate. They weren't trying to be. They weren't hiding anything. You know, <clears throat> like if you do what's on the page and if you understand what the orchestra is doing, like you said, and you yes. understand the words, that's all you have to do is to communicate what's going on. You know, right. And all the complexity is already there. You know, you that's, that's like the classical way of doing yeah. literally everything. You know, yeah. like like Greeks, uh, the Spartans were great at military because that was their whole life. Yeah. You know, and again, I think it's the same thing with everybody else. Mozart was the great composer because that was his entire existence. You know, yeah. his short existence. So let us be jealous of you a little bit right now. How, what has been like something that's really awesome that's happened to you besides having a wife and a kid but yeah yeah that's awesome you know but I mean like for your career that like we all can be jealous about you know oh come on I don't know I met Renee a bunch of times she held my little baby right when she was born and um Renee once called me from Vienna and it was like seven in the morning Tucker Gala this last winter right yeah. with this last it is winter <laughs> and uh a little bit I I go to my table to sit down at the dinner after the gala yeah and who's sitting there? Lynn Carriou, the original Sweeney Todd. <laughs> and I was like, hello, how are you? I was so star- starstruck. I don't get starstruck like almost at all, but he uh, he's like a hero of mine. Do you want to sing you talk about performing? Oh, yeah. yeah. I would love to sing that. Again, that. The, the, the villain, you know. But, uh, God, what a, what a crazy performance he gave. You could feel all the blood and guts. Just on the record, you know, you didn't even have to see him do it. It was so amazing because he put everything out there. Just wow, just gave everything. Hmm. It's so that's kind of neat. Do you ever, when you're on stage at a place like the Lyric or in the Pit at the Met or War Memorial in San Francisco, yeah. and you think I was selling Toyotas? Was it Toyotas? What were you saying? Yeah, Toyotas. Hyundai's. I mean, do you ever have that moment where you're like, 
damn, this is cool. Like, yeah. I can't believe that my life turned into this. And... Yeah, kind of. Most days, actually, I'm I'm very thankful. Uh, it's it's. I don't know. There's nothing really else to say about it. Sorry, hit the table. But there's nothing really else to say about that. It's just like I'm I'm extremely fortunate to have uh, kind of fallen into it this way. I, I think the only way I could have done it is the way I did it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Because I didn't have like the pipeline kind of like flushing me out to the Ryan Center, flushing me out to you know the the companies or anything. It was I had to make everything happen myself. That's the only way I could have done it. Ikuritani runs until... End of February. End of February. So mm-hmm. if you haven't seen it yet, now you know you should go and cheer for Clark. <laughs> and uh, thank you so much for doing this show. We really appreciate it. Yeah, anytime. We take a listen to tenor Paul Appleby's time inside the huddle. That's next on America's talk radio show about opera on WNUR-FM Evanston, Chicago. <laughs> Live from Chicago, you're listening to Opera Box Score. More right after this. Hey, George Cedarquist here, host of Opera Box Score. All right, here's a tip. If you've recently started listening to our show, you already know there's nothing else like it. Week in, week out, you get our panel's hot takes on opera news in the two-minute drill, plus our patented segments like Fantasy Fockball, Monday Evening Quarterback, and Crunching the Numbers. But you might not know about some of the incredible interview guests who have gone inside the huddle with our team, like tenor Matthew Polanzani, composer Gregory Spears, intendant Kirsten Harms, and countertenor Jakub Josef Orlinski, to name just a few. Check out the Opera Box Score archives on SoundCloud. Just go to soundcloud.com and search for Opera Box Score. And you can tell us about your favorite interviews on our Facebook page and our Twitter feed. Huddle up. Let's go inside the huddle. Admired for his interpretive depth, vocal strength, and range of expressivity, tenor Paul Appleby is one of the most sought-after voices of his generation. A versatile artist, he is equally in demand on the world's leading concert, recital, and opera stages. Paul joined creative consultant Oliver Camacho inside the huddle last spring. A real 
As I, that's sort of a goal I have for myself as I get older and just try and mature is that the distance between my approach to singing a song, singing a Schubert mass mm-hmm. or concert piece or an opera, that they, they become more and more just a, a singular function or event okay. vocally. Um, and for my, as you were talking about how I approach it text first, I'm, I'm always trying to now play to my weaknesses more because my strengths kind of take care of themselves and so I'm trying always to increase my legato and just and color letting that be more present because it's not my natural instinctual way to approach whatever I'm singing whether it's an opera role or a song or anything in between so um, I'm finding that uh, it's all actually about vocal technique more than any other thing more than about text or color and those kind of considerations but um, I'll, if I, I launch into this I had a really interesting week with Muti this week. Okay. Schubert mess. <laughs> Am I digressing too much? No, no, no. I, I love it. I, we all want to hear about Muti. So. Because he was really... Uh, you can probably hear I have a little cold. I'm, I've been nursing a, this congestion from the cold from last week. And it's been really challenging because he's been so precise in what he's asking for us soloists, and mm-hmm. especially me, because that at Incarnatus S, as you yeah. said, is the kind of like the crown jewel yeah. of that whole mass. It's the reason to program that mass. Basically. Yeah. And I think that's what Muti thinks. And yeah. so he was really, really precise and very demanding of all of us soloists. And the thing is, the it's actually, it's not really difficult part for any of us. It's But it has to, it sits in the sort of upper middle voice range, sort of pre-Passaggio, mm-hmm. and then you kind of float up to... Mm-hmm. You have to sing this kind of very heady mix up to G's and A flats. Yeah. And so he was on all of our cases, but especially us, ten, me and Nick, the tenors, to create this color that was very light and like diaphanous or whatever, mm-hmm. but still kind of connected to the core of the sound. And so actually it was really challenging because mm-hmm. he wouldn't let us just kind of sing it out the way yeah. that we prepared ourselves to or normally do and apply our the techniques yeah. that we usually use. As but for singers. those of you who aren't singers... This doing this type of singing can get very fatiguing. Like you need to lock, you need to connect into the breath, right? To to relax the chords. And if you're doing this super instrumental, like high, you know, or contra sound, exactly, the chords just get tired. Well, that well, or you have to like really dig and find a way to find that support. And it's been actually as hard as it's been. I've actually learned a lot this week because he's been so demanding about keeping the sound focused, which is a way of talking about the chords actually staying. Mm-hmm. In contact, but at the same time, you have to have so much breath support so that they're they're close, really close. But you have the control so that they stay close without too much air getting through, and mm-hmm. it's very complex. But I found it to be a great voice lesson, actually. And I, as frustrating as it was, mm-hmm. and a little scary as it was to have Muti like riding us so hard, I'm really appreciative of it because it forced us, forced me to find a way to create a, a very specific color that focused the sound and projected without being anything above a very quiet kind of sound. So. Yeah. I find that there's a spontaneity in your phrasing, a spontaneity in the way you are singing, and I felt like you did not practice it this way. Like, you were doing something completely new in this moment. Like, you're thinking while you're singing. Is that happening, or is that something that you're actually practicing to feel like you're spontaneous? I, you, I'm really impressed that you're, everything you're saying is I'm very flattered by it and because it's stuff that I actually do work on consciously. So I really appreciate that that at least someone recognizes it. You are. <laughs> you, that's exactly what I'm trying to say. 
Yeah, that that is like that recital, for example, with Ken Noda. Mm-hmm. Ken and I worked really closely for years. Um, he was worked with me when I was a young artist at the Met, and ever since then, we've done a lot of song stuff together. And his approach has been really useful to me because it's about just preparing the hell out of whatever you're doing and just spending as much time as you can, especially when you're working in a, a small ensemble like that, mm-hmm. so that there's all these sort of subconscious cues and ways of communicating that you're not even conscious of that start to uh, develop between you and your, your whoever you're collaborating with, mm-hmm. whether it's an orchestra or a pianist or whatever. And so you never know what's going to happen on a day. And as you, if the more preparation you can do and just feel so secure, then you can let whatever happens in the moment, whether it's the acoustic of the room, the people in the room, how they're reacting, how you're feeling. Dramatic pauses you decide to take. Yeah, and just kind yeah. of let that have the trust in yourself and in your colleague or colleagues that we know what we're doing and let's just let the moment happen and respond to it and that is when the magic happens you right know? if you're just like this is how we do it and it's precise and we got to hold on tight and make sure we get it just right then you I, I don't, a that's not any fun and it invites this kind of tension into your body and into your whole energy that people will sense and it won't make people feel relaxed it won't make you feel relaxed and the music won't the overtones will start to diminish and the sound and all kinds of so yes that freedom kineticism whatever it is mm-hmm. spontaneity i definitely cherish that and, okay. and you have to work really hard so you're it. saying that there's something that you established with ken and that you've you worked with him but have you ever wanted to be that way on an opera stage oh and, no i mean yes that's that's my goal always yeah. always but um but has it gotten you trouble gotten you into trouble like trying to be more like i'm gonna just do this you know oh it, it gets you in trouble if you're not prepared to do it S- spontaneity and freedom is something you have to earn through a lot of hard work mm-hmm. you know what i mean because that's something you learn is that your brain, you're building, you know, neural pathways, and that's what practicing, and it's all physical, muscle memory, all that stuff. Even ment- teaching yourself how to think about how I'm going to sing this phrase, you know what I mean? How I'm going to, what this song means, how, how I'm going to shape that closed e vowel in that mm-hmm. French song, you know what I mean? And how I'm going to, all those little details, you have, to, you have to attend to them. You've spent a lot of time physically rehearsing them for that, all those reasons, mentally practicing the exercise and the thought process that you're going to employ. So I found that if I'm not, if I try and be spontaneous without really doing the homework, then that's a recipe for disaster. Yeah. <laughs> so that's, that's what I've learned. The hard work and preparation and rehearsal is all about giving yourself the chance to be spontaneous because you've developed that kind of trust with your ensemble and with your own instrument well your main career right now in opera at least as far as i could see is as a mozartian i think actually there's a quote that you're a mozartian heartthrob <laughs> oh really somebody said that somewhere oh, nice. i think how oh, nice yeah. um so i think a lot of us who have studied um you know classical voice opera we you know have this concept of mozart as not being a repertoire you can be necessarily spontaneous in. Like once, once the piece gets going, you're you're in that rhythm. You're not doing really big changes of dynamics. You know, you're not, you know, doing a lot of rubato like that type of stuff. Yeah. So how do you balance that, like your natural musical personality, with singing Mozart? That's a great question. I I think I've been thinking about this question a lot because I'm I'm starting to move beyond Mozart, mm-hmm. um, in my rep, and you know you hear everyone tells you. Every young person needs to sing Mozart. But I think, I, I understand now that mm-hmm. I'm kind of 
coming out of mm-hmm. <laughs> it being the so so central to everything I do. Mm-hmm. Um, what's so hard about Mozart singing Mozart opera for everybody, and especially for tenors, I think the lesson that you you have to learn in Mozart is you have to learn how to sing in your passaggio with incredible flexibility. And by flexibility, I don't mean like coloratory, yeah. but I mean like colors. And yeah. you, be, you need to be able to shape vowels in an E natural, an F, and an F sharp. You need to be saying an A and an O and an E and an U and shape them and just right shade them so that the color connects to the emotional content of the phrase, fits into whatever the, you know, if the phrase is ascending or descending, it changes all those little details. And it's so easy to get, start manipulating your larynx and your throat and your jaw and your mouth to try and achieve those ends. And so really to learn how to sing Mozart with the freedom to do that without that that precision of in the passaggio and still be able to have the breath support to go up above it and sing high notes and <laughs> keep your voice in a healthy place, that is really hard. And every singer, I think, has to learn how to do that. And Mozart forces you to do that. And it's kind of, if you can't figure it out through Mozart, then you're going to have a hard time later on in your career when you've outgrown Mozart. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Because everyone, not everyone outgrows Mozart, but a lot of us are able to do things we weren't able to do before Mozart in a weird way. Do you so know what I mean? Do you have some... You know, passion repertoire that you're going towards right now. Yeah, well, actually, that's that's a that's a, I'm I'm exploring a lot of new things right yeah. now. Like I'm singing Paleos next year at the Met for the first time. I'm so excited! I saw that. I'm really I'm excited. Try to go. And actually, that preparing for that role has been really eye opening to me because <clears throat> I've learned a big lesson from it. Funny, I'll tell you an interesting story that was kind of a, a light bulb went off for me. I had been singing. I had sung the role of. Uh, Benedict and Beatrice and Benedict yeah. and Berlioz at Glyndebourne two summers ago, I think it was. And, you know, we did like 14 performances or something of it at Glyndebourne. And it's a tricky role. It's hard. It's it's up and down and up and down. And there's a lot of high notes, but also kind of low. It was it was tough. And I remember I'd always warm up. I'd warm up like crazy before those shows. And I was worried always about making sure I'd get up top and make sure my voice was light enough in the middle voice and the passage so that I wasn't like carrying up too much weight. And, it, it, you know, I managed to do it, but... Later that year, I got a call from the Paris Opera because they were doing a concert of that, and their tenor canceled. So on a Wednesday, the concert was a Friday. I flew Wednesday night, landed Thursday morning, did a dress rehearsal that morning, and uh, then the show Friday night. And I somehow did it, and it was great. And the thing is, I would just gotten the Paleos contract offered to me so uh, earlier that year. So I had been deliberately working on lower repertoire to try and work on my lower middle voice, which Paleos requires especially from a tenor. So I'd been deliberately trying to grow my lower part of my voice in a healthy way. And so I'd been in the middle of singing, actually I was singing a lot of song stuff. I was singing like these Schubert songs that were like in the baritone key and Tel Jour, Tel Nuit by Poulenc, which is this Barito Martin kind of thing. And I was worried actually about doing the Berlioz because I'd been deliberately singing lower tessitura stuff. And then I went to Paris and all of a sudden like the top for me was like so much easier and way better all of a sudden. And I was worried that I'd been singing low stuff, so, oh, gosh, this is going to be a mess. And it kind of crystallized this idea that had sort of been slowly forming in my mind that it's really important to learn how to be very efficient with your sound in the bottom of your range. And then if you do learn something about how to support that and get the right balance with your vocal onset and all this other stuff, that that's actually the the foundation that everything else can be built upon. So I've had a lot of fun. Wow. This is a super 
tangent, but maybe interesting if we, <laughs> if we get it right. This is bel canto that you're what you're talking about. Yeah, like and that's right. You're not known as a bel canto singer, but are you finding now a bel canto technique? I think I'm. Yeah, I think I, I think that's kind of what's happening. It's it's weird. Um, a lot of new doors are starting to open to me, and I'm quite. I'm not sure which is the right one to to walk through. <laughs> yeah, whether it's please stay smart. Oh no! Sure, sure. No, I don't become dumb tenor. That I mean, that's the thing. I mean, I, 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 I'm trying to figure out what the right choice is, but I don't know if it's. I have Peleus sounds like an amazing choice to me. Well, Peleus is great, but Peleus is such a specific, yeah. like sui generis kind of role. So, yeah. it's been really helpful. But, you know, I, I, I do think I want to try and venture into some more bel canto or at least some more French 19th century French repertoire because that is a really interesting like Romeo way. or like Faust or maybe not Romeo yet that that that's a little sizable yeah. still I think yeah. but I think a role like Nadir oh yeah and maybe even um actually Descrieux in the the Manon the Messina okay I think those are actually a little those are the orchestration and the way the the roles sit are a little more yeah. on the lyric side and then maybe Faust, and then maybe Rubio, but, and then eventually who knows from there. But I think those roles for me are ones that I, I want to start focusing on. In addition to... Too my... bad nobody stages like Wadis. <laughs> <laughs> well, I always got that, that party piece for that. Yeah, right? <laughs> no, you sing it very well. Oh, thank you. But, that's, yeah, but I definitely also see, want to keep things like Handel and Britain very central to my rep. And so I'm working really hard. I'm doing to, to get those gigs. <laughs> yeah. Because handle again, it sits. The tenor roles tend to sit a little lower, so I'm finding it really useful to help me grow that part of my voice, so that the whole the whole infrastructure of my voice is growing. Are we thinking like Jupiter or Semele or? Well, I'm doing or... I'm doing Samson this summer oh, wow. okay. at the Edinburgh Festival, and uh, I'm doing a couple other things. I don't think I can talk about in the future, mm -hmm. but yeah, some some of the Italian roles, and definitely some of the English oratorial roles. Yeah. I haven't I don't have any plans to do it, but I like Jephthah, for example, is yeah. one that I'm oh, just it's long though, but it's No, I know, yeah, but yeah. that's the exactly it's yeah. a great way to sort of yeah. start to build stamina for What about Theodora? I would okay. jump at it. I mean again it's, it's not a lot of coloratura though. Are you comfortable with that? Yeah, no, yeah. it takes work and um for example I've been working a lot on um I'm gonna be doing a Rotolinda. Okay. In a couple of years, and that's also just like to keep that in your voice is yeah. so important because I do think I'll eventually, in time, get to Tito, Clemenza mm -hmm. de Tito, and Idomeneo, and coloratura is surely important in those things, and I think it's important to keep, force yourself to do that, and I try and sing as much Bach as I can just when I warm up and sing, and to keep that in that flexibility always present because yeah. otherwise, that's why they call Handel the great voice teacher I think because it forces you to keep that balance so you don't oversing. You can't undersing and under support yeah. or it won't work. So it, it, it forces you to find the, the right sort of engagement and keep the flexibility in terms of coloratura and the way it approaches the passaggio. All that stuff is why Handel, I think, needs to, should be in any, anybody's sort of yeah. repertoire because it, it doesn't matter if your voice is small or big, really, to do Handel well, I don't think, as long as you keep the, that healthy balance and flexibility in your voice. I agree with you. And I... But but one thing I'll tell you the other role I just want to get this out there world. <laughs> I, I'm really I'm really Britain roles are really important to me too, and I think Peter Grimes is a role that Ugh. that I'm working towards as well. You don't have that craggy quality in your voice. You're more going to be like a Philip Language Peter Grimes than yeah. A... I mean like Anthony Rolf Johnson yeah. for example is a singer I really admire and um, not that my voice sounds like him but yeah Philip Language yeah. and those English guys. Yeah. 
And I, I, my sound is not exactly like theirs. Yeah. And certainly it's not like Piers, right? Yeah. I'm so glad we got that. <laughs> Nor is it like Vickers, for that matter. Is, but <laughs> This is the last question I have for you, which is always a very complicated question to answer. But maybe you've thought about this. You, I would put you in the category of, of us as being a stylist singer. Yeah. And Americans are not known for being stylists. Um, how do you feel going into, you know, Edinburgh or other, you know, European houses as the American? And do you feel that there's already a preconception about what you're going to be like as an American? And do you notice the difference with other, you know, with European singers? Hmm. Yeah, yes. Well, it, it, it does definitely depends on the country. Mm-hmm. So... I did, for if example, you have generalizations. We love stereotypes like that. <laughs> well, no, I just mean like what what country sort of thinks of their that as their music. Mm-hmm. So, for example, I did I performed in Saul in Glyndebourne, the Handel Oratorio Saul, mm-hmm. and I think I was the only American in that cast. And I fit in easily enough, just because we all you know we spoke English, and um, that was really instructive to me because it was because the whole cast was English except for me. Um, I was able to kind of slip in there, and my name is super Anglo anyway. Yeah. So yeah. I think people, if they didn't know who I was, would just assume I was, you know, a, you know, English myself. Um, but it's been though, getting to do opera like that is really useful because there's just a long rehearsal was it period. Yeah, it was staged. Okay, oh cool. yeah, it was brilliant staging. Barry Kosky is great, and actually we're doing it again in Houston. I don't, I don't know if I can tell you about this, but we're doing it in the future at an American <laughs> opera company in like a year or two. <laughs> um, so, but that was really, but I definitely felt a lot of pressure and it was Ivor Bolton, who's also an English early music kind of specialist conducting it. And I definitely feel a lot of pressure to get up to speed with where they all are because it's just, just in their yeah. tradition. You know what I mean? It's like how they grow up. They sing this choral music. They're all so much more familiar with Handel's music. So I definitely feel a pressure to do it, but it's so rewarding to sort of take on the demands of that very specific discipline. Whereas, um, for example, I remember I sang with uh, Manfred Honig, who is Austrian, and he invited me to his festival that he runs called the Wolfeck Festival at this yeah. old castle. And But I, I, we sang uh, the creation of Haydn. Okay. And that was terrifying. I mean, in German, of course. It was yeah. Die Schöpfung, I should yeah. say. And I, I'll never forget that experience because we're in... You know Austria with an Austrian audience singing Haydn to them for yeah. goodness sakes, and and the, the that kind of pressure is it's a lot of pressure, but it, it forces you to understand where that tradition comes from and what it's really about, and you get to know the people and the singers who do it. So um, I've just been really grateful for those experiences, and I'm always seeking them out because yeah, that's a good. I'm not a generalist. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean. I try and find pieces that really I have something to say about that flatter me and my instrument yeah well it's been so amazing talking to you and we're already at the 40 minute mark oh gosh we so i know i can't use all 40 of these so uh audience you're missing a really great part of this conversation which i had to edit out and i apologize for it some real tenor nerding out here yeah. that's great but thank you so much and uh, congratulations on your cso debut thank you very much it was a pleasure good call bad call on opera box score Well, I don't know about you, but I've had a lovely time hanging out in the studio with you tonight. 
Next week we should have all the boys back in here, or at least a couple of them. I won't be by myself anymore, but that's okay. In the meantime, I got a good call for you, all you listeners out there. Iolanta, if you're in Chicago, opens this Saturday, November 10th. That's uh, with uh, Lydia Nokovskaya and uh, the Chicago Opera Theater. And if you aren't in Chicago, you can always catch the Met Live in HD broadcast this weekend of Marnie by Nico Muli, and that is based on the film of the same name by good old Alfred Hitchcock. And that is it for this week's edition of America's Talk Radio Show about opera. The new general manager at WNUR is John Williams. No, not that John Williams. Our announcer is Norm Woodell. Visit Norm on the web at voxershorts.com. That's V-O-X-E-R-S-H-O-R-T-S.com. Our theme song is Vodka Inferno, written and performed by the Diablo Swing Orchestra. On Facebook, search for Opera Box Score. Be sure to share and comment on our posts. On Twitter, we're at Opera Box Score. Please leave a review when you subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts. Our creative consultant is Oliver Camacho. I'm Weston Williams, asking you to continue the conversation about opera as you stand in line to vote tomorrow. We're back on Monday, November 12th at 9 p.m. Central. More opera headlines and our hot takes on those stories. Join us then. This is WNUR-FM Evanston, Chicago, Chicago's sound experiment.